Well, I couldn't help but chuckle as I walked down the hallway of my dormitory in college and my next door neighbor walked out of his door at the shirt that he was wearing. And it wasn't so much the design, it was pretty simple of the shirt, it was what it said that made me laugh. It said, and they will know we are Christians by our (laughs) t-shirts. And we laugh partly because we've all seen a cheesy Christian t-shirt before. If we're being honest and have some real talk, we've probably, many of us have worn a cheesy Christian t-shirt before. And when we come out with t-shirts as a church, we're trying not to replicate that. But we also laugh because we know that's not how the saying goes, right? The right saying is, and they will know we are Christians by our what? Okay, we're going to have to go through this. See, the 9 o'clock service was really strong, and this is spring forward weekend. So if the 9 o'clock service can be strong, you guys had... You guys got to sleep in a little bit later. You guys can be strong. And they will know we are Christians by our what? There we go. They will know we are Christians by our love. And it's interesting. Jesus didn't say, hey, disciples, when I'm gone, uh, I want you guys to all wear red or wear white. So, hey, they'll know that you're Christians. And even though many Christians have taken to the symbol of the, the cross or the fish or other things throughout history, none of that was because that's what Jesus told them to do. He did not give his followers a visible external sign to show that they were his people. He said, no, this is how they're going to know. They're going to know because of the love that you have for one another. And we're going to actually look at that specific passage today as we open up our Bibles to John chapter 13. So let's go to John chapter 13, and we're going to finish Uh, the chapter in this series on learning to love as we look at verses 31 through 38 today. John 13, 31 through 38. And this is the end of the chapter. And last week we talked about Judas and he leaves. So now Judas has left and it is just the 11 remaining disciples. And really what we're going to see is kind of a new level and depth of intimacy in the conversation now that Judas is gone. And really, from this point on to the end of chapter 17, it's really Jesus' last words to these 11 disciples before he is crucified. The last extended teaching he will have with them before he is crucified. And we know from church history that 10 of those 11 would also go on to give their lives for the sake of the gospel. So he's going to be saying some very important things to them. And let's see how it all starts in these eight verses. Follow along as I read. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And so here, as Judas leaves, and Jesus kind of begins a whole new section of teaching, he begins by saying, now is the Son of Man glorified. What's he talking about? Ultimately, he's talking about his crucifixion because now that Judas is gone, kind of the gears are all in motion. The machinery that's going to lead to Jesus Christ on a cross is happening. Jesus has, or Judas has left. He is going to go get some, some soldiers. He's going to get some of the religious leaders, and they're coming back to arrest Jesus. Everything is moving, and Jesus knows he is about to be arrested. He is about to be put on the cross, and that is what he calls his glorification. That's a very interesting idea, that his suffering, his crucifixion, will be his glorification. And this is kind of familiar ground as we've gone through the Gospel of John. John really loves kind of these words and phrases that have this sense of double meaning. And one we've seen several times is Jesus talking about being lifted up, which obviously has that double meaning of one, him being exalted, lifted up, and then literally lifted up on a cross. And he's saying, hey, it's, it's one in the same. I will be lifted up and glorified when I am lifted up and crucified. Jesus sees his glorification and his crucifixion all happening at the same time. And even here, he uses that phrase, the son of man, one of Jesus' favorite phrases for himself. When we see that used throughout scripture, when it's used outside the gospels, It's really referring to the glory of the Son of Man. When it's used in the Gospels, Jesus usually using it of himself, it highlights his suffering. And now, in this moment, all of that with the Son of Man is merged, both his glory and his suffering. The suffering of Christ and his glory go together. We see here the glory of the cross. Now, here we got to kind of call a timeout. Because this all sounds very familiar and very churchy. And we need to take a step back and realize how jarring that truth is. I mean, think about what you just sang. You know, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Did you catch some of the words you sang right before that chorus? He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, right? You catch the the, the jarring connection there. Normally when you think of someone suffering and dying alone is your first thought, marvelous. No, usually it's how horrendous, how terrible. That's what that is. And, And we have the whole picture. We have the benefit of hindsight. Let's not lose sight of how shocking this would be to people that heard it, right? You've never seen a crucifixion before, and if you have, it's some Hollywood version that is very, even the, the, even the more intense ones, very, very sanitized, I guarantee you, compared to the real thing. If you saw a crucifixion, you would say, that's the worst thing I've ever seen, right? And if you realized it's a crucifixion of someone that didn't deserve it, more than that, God in the flesh, the Messiah, come to his people, and he ends up on the cross, you would say, this is terrible. This is not right. I mean, think of maybe what's the worst thing you have seen. And I, you know, just thinking in my own lifetime, I think, you know, back to something like 9-11, right? Watching those towers fall in real time on 
the TV screen. What a horrible thing that seemed. And if somebody next to me would have been like, how marvelous, how wonderful, I probably would have punched him in the face, right? And you probably would have too. And you think of how jarring that was. Think about Jesus talking about being crucified and saying, now is the Son of Man glorified. This would have been head-scratching stuff to the disciples. And I don't want us to lose sight of that because we're familiar with some of these things. Jesus is saying that in his suffering, in this crucifixion, that's when you're going to see his glory like never before. Let's put this down for point number one. See glory like it's never been seen before. As we consider the cross, I want you to see this, this moment, as a time when God is showing his glory in the most unique and compelling way that he has ever shown his glory. And I mean, that's what those two first two verses of our passage, it's a glory fest. The Son of Man, Jesus is going to be glorified. God, the Father, is going to be glorified. And God's going to be glorified in Jesus. And Jesus is going to be glorified in himself. And it's just glory, glory, glory to the Father and the Son. But we need to stop and say, how in the world are we seeing glory as Jesus is crucified? Well, let's even think about that idea of seeing glory. And if you're reading through the Bible with us, one passage has been kind of a standout passage so far in our reading is Exodus 33 and 34. And if you remember there, Moses asks God, he says, God, show me your glory. And God basically says, you can't handle my glory in its fullness. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in the rock. I'm going to pass before you and I'm going to catch, let you catch a little glimpse of the back of my glory. But what happens there is not so much in what is visible that Moses sees in that moment. It's what he hears. God reveals himself as he passes by Moses with these words. We'll put them up on the screen for you. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God, when he's revealing his glory, reveals his character in this passage. He highlights his mercy, his grace, his love, his forgiveness. And he also highlights his justice and his holiness and how he feels about sin. And in the cross, what we see is that God is not all talk. He wasn't just throwing this stuff out there. He means it. And there is no single instance throughout history where you can see all of these things coming together like you can when Jesus Christ is on the cross. We see all of this. When he talks about his holiness and justice, that he is not going to clear the guilty, but he is going to bring justice. He is going to judge sin. He's not bluffing when he says that. And when your sin or my sin is forgiven, God is not sweeping it under the rug. No, it is still being paid for. That sin is still being judged, except you're not bearing the judgment. Jesus Christ is on the cross. God is committed to punishing sin. And that's where, even though that's become less and less popular, we have to admit, no, that's a good thing. 
Just like we all appreciate justice when we see it in this world. And we feel that something has gone wrong when someone gets away with murder or abuse or some kind of crime. We say, no, that's not good. That's not right. God is committed to what is good and what is right, and he will punish sin. And even the sin that is forgiven, it is punished through Christ on the cross. And I hope we all see how important that is, because if God is not just, he is not good. And if he is not good, well, then he's not God. For God to be who he says he is, he has to mean what he says about justice, and he shows that on the cross. But also, when God talks about love and grace and forgiveness, he means that too. And where do we see that most clearly? On the cross. That God is willing to give those things. And think about it. In that moment, who did it cost? God. The Father had to deal with the the pain and the sorrow of giving up his only son. Jesus Christ had to bear the, the pain physically and spiritually in that moment of his father turning his back on him, of being mocked and abused and crucified. To show all of these things that we see in Exodus, God took it upon himself. Jesus took the suffering himself to show the glory of God in a way that it had never been seen as clearly and compellingly as it was then. And even as we think about suffering in this moment, the the most intense suffering that has ever been experienced, the, the worst moment of suffering in all of human history is when we see the glory of God most clearly. And even as we think through hard questions like, well, why is there suffering in this world? Or why is there suffering in my life? Or we start to address this, what, what people call the problem of evil. We start to see maybe there is a purpose for why God has allowed suffering. Without suffering, would we even know who God is? Without suffering, would there ever even be true love? Can there be real love without sacrifice? Even think, we're going to look at this passage later, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. The first thing it uses to describe love is love is patient. And even the Greek where there is often translated long-suffering, patience implies there's something wrong. There's something that you are putting up with. In a world where everything was perfect, there would be no patience. And if there's no patience, could there really be love? And you might think, well, what about heaven? Everything's going to be perfect there. Will we experience love? Well, we will remember, we will have seen the love of God. And what we will sing for eternity is not, wow, Jesus, you look really cool. We will say, worthy is the lamb who was what? We will remember his suffering forever, and we will worship him for that. It's important even as we think about love and suffering, and it's also important that we remember that God didn't just, well, I'm going to make you put up with suffering so you can see my glory. God said, no, I am going to go through suffering so that you can see my glory. And it says there in John that he will glorify him and glorify him at once. That the glorification of Christ isn't just something that we're going to see in eternity. It happens right away. And I think this is speaking of the resurrection of Christ and then his ascension. And again, these are things that speak to the glory of God. We wouldn't know resurrection if we didn't know death. And here we see the power of God to overcome sin. The power of God to overcome death. We see the glory of God so clearly 
in this moment. And kind of as an aside, I hope this is something that does bring some comfort to you when you experience suffering, when you experience pain, that you remember in your small picture of suffering, even though it may be real and even though it may be painful, you remember the big picture and that God used suffering, even took on suffering himself to show his glory. And that God is not out to to get you and he's vindictive and that's why there is suffering. No, he is showing us something good. And maybe even in our suffering, we should pray less. God, just remove the suffering and maybe pray more. God, show me your glory. And that's what I want to see. In a moment of suffering, in a moment of unimaginable pain, in a moment of injustice, God shows his perfect justice, his perfect holiness, his perfect love, his grace, and his forgiveness. But with all that, and thinking of the crucifixion, Jesus is leaving. This is something of a farewell speech. We see in verse 33, he tells them, hey, I'm, I'm going, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Which we'll see later from what he says to Peter, to his disciples, he clearly means you're not going to come right now. You'll come later, but you're not going to come right now. And so, so much of what comes after that, not just in this passage, but really in these next several chapters, is kind of Jesus' parting words. Hey, I'm leaving. Here's the most important things you guys need to know to carry on this mission and this truth. And he starts with a new commandment. He starts with this emphasis on loving one another. Now, what does it mean there by a new commandment? Because if you are reading through the Bible with us. And if you were one of the few, the proud, the I made it through Leviticus uh, people, you noticed in there, he's, that's where he says, hey, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a new commandment, wait, Jesus loving your neighbor, that, that's as old as Leviticus. That, that's been around for over a thousand years that you've been telling us to love each other. How is this a new commandment? We have to realize what is going on even in this night with the Last Supper and the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus is instituting a new covenant. A new era in the history of God's people is beginning. And this is the command that will guide his people through this era. And even you look at the Old Testament versus the New Testament, you see some of the instruction is a bit simpler in the New Testament. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, where he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's why there's no New Testament Leviticus reminding you, hey guys, don't don't reap from the corners of your field. Leave that for the, the needy people that need it. No, it's, it's covering all of that in whatever society and whatever time you might live in with the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Or Jesus, hey, just as I have loved you, you should love one another. So this is a new covenant. It's a new era. But also the other thing that we need to admit is it's a new standard. Jesus now sets the bar with his example of love. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. That's an example of love that people hadn't had before. And they hadn't seen the life of Christ. They hadn't seen the suffering of Christ. So they would have had no context for that 
command. But now Jesus is setting the bar with his perfect example. Let's get a sense of how high that bar is and the perfection of Jesus' love. Even just think about, you know, we use that phrase setting the bar, right? We're kind of making an athletic illustration, talking about something like the high jump, right? Well, the world record for high jump is 2.45 meters, which is just over eight feet, okay? Well, I'm just over six feet, and this stage is two feet, so I'm just about just over eight feet. Would any of you like to come and see if you can jump over me right now? No, most of you are saying, if I could just get on the stage, that would be a victory. Um, You know, jumping over me, you're like, there's no way. It's not going to happen. Well, when we think about the bar of the love of Christ, we should all kind of be looking at that and saying, wow, how can I I get there? How, How can I even begin to love like Christ has loved? So point number two, as we think about this, every single one of us, challenge yourself with the standard of Jesus. Challenge yourself with the standard of Jesus. If the standard is, hey, just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another, then guess what? Every single one of us has room to grow. None of us is leaving here today saying, well, yeah, I got that loving other people thing down. No, the standard is Christ. And there is room for all of us to grow. And let's think, well, what might that look like? Let's get a little more specific, but let's just think. He says, just as I have loved you, how has Jesus loved us? And let's think through a few ways. Let's go first to Colossians chapter 3. Look at a couple other passages here. Go to Colossians chapter 3. And it reminds us of something that was really at the center of the love of Christ and something that we saw even in Exodus 34. But Colossians 3, starting in verse 12, as he's teaching people, what does living this new life look like? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Right before love, what's kind of the crescendo of all those other commands? Forgive each other. And also, we see here in in John, Jesus saying, just as I have loved you, you also ought to love. There's a lot of symmetry between what we see about forgiveness in the New Testament. Often it's just as Christ has forgiven you, you also ought to forgive. That's one way we should challenge ourselves with the standard of Christ. At the center of his love was this desire to forgive. And that needs to be central to our love. And that's a lot easier said than done, right? Because if you have something to forgive, that means somebody has done something wrong to you. And forgiving that is not easy. And I'll give you that. And you might say, hey, pastor, this person doesn't deserve forgiveness. I'm not going to argue with you. You're probably right. But the whole point is, well, neither do you and neither do I. But God has forgiven us anyways. Our forgiveness shouldn't be awarded when someone deserves it. That is not the way that God forgave us. And that's going to challenge a lot of us. And again, as we talked about last week on this similar topic, we can't force reconciliation, right? 
We can't force the other person to repent, and there's not going to be that restoration without that. But we must have that willingness to forgive. It's not our place to hold a grudge or to remain bitter. God is calling us to forgive. That's the standard of Christ. Another thing we see as we think about the love of Jesus is he was willing to sacrifice. He loved us by laying down his life. Are you laying down your life for others? And let's not think about, you know, the big dramatic, hey, I'm in the foxhole jumping on the grenade for my brothers in arms. No, let's think about the everyday ways that God is calling you to lay down your life for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And as we do that, let's go to maybe the most famous passage on love in the Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, maybe a familiar passage to many of you, but let's look at it again. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, as it describes love. We've already referred to this, love is patient. And again, that implies that there's something wrong. There's no way you're going to be able to bear with others, even in their failure or their weakness, without laying your life down. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the way that we are to love. And that's going to require us to lay our lives down, right? We're not insisting on our own way. We're not rejoicing at wrongdoing. We're bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. One way maybe you can check this. And even examine yourself is, read this passage to yourself, except every time you see love, take that out and put your name in. Ben is patient and kind. Ben does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not, and see, the longer you read, kind of like the quieter your voice becomes, right? (laughs) Because you get to a point where it's like, I don't, can I say this with a straight face, right? And we're reminded of all the ways that we fall short of these things. But again, as we consider our example, let's try it different. Take out love, and every time love is referred to, put Christ in there. Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That works out a little better, right? Than you or me. But that's the challenge that every single one of us should feel today and this week. That we should look at that list and we should maybe put your name in there and say, well, what was the hardest thing for you to actually say with a straight face? And you need to go to God and say, God, help me. We need to confess our shortcomings and ask God for his help and turn our attention to the perfect example of Christ. Because as Jesus says, this is what our church needs to be known for. 
People need to know when they come here, this is a place where they can, no one has to tell them that we love each other. They will see it and they will know that we are disciples of Christ because of our love for one another. And I hate to break it to you, but this isn't a perfect church. And you know what? It's your fault. Uh, Blew that as soon as you showed up. But hey, that's true for all of us, right? None of us here are perfect. And as long as we're all coming to this church, it's never going to be a perfect church. But again, what a perfect opportunity to show forgiveness, sacrifice, patience, kindness, and love. And that's what people should see when they come here. When somebody new shows up to your life group, it should be apparent to them. No one should have to tell them, man, these people love each other. As they are greeted on a Sunday morning, they should sense a kindness behind that that is uncommon in our culture. And is it is inevitable in a church full of perfect people, when they see something or someone wrong, they should see visibly the forgiveness of Christ displayed. And let's think even about how this applies not just to all of us within our own church. Let's just think about our church. What, what is our church known for in our community? When somebody thinks of Compass Bible Church, do they think, man, those people love each other? And do they even think, man, those people love God's people? That they love other Christians in this valley. We are not the only church in the Treasure Valley. We aren't the only people seeking to follow Jesus Christ, is there an obvious love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this valley, even though they might not attend the same church as we do? I think that's what God is calling us to. I mean, Jesus said, and this is how they will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And I even just think when we go beyond the walls of one church and just think about how Christians in general interact with each other. If the world could hop onto Christian Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, would they say, wow, how these people love each other? Unfortunately, many times I'd be like, yikes. Or some of them who might have be entertained by that kind of thing, like, wow, these people like to destroy each other. Where's the popcorn, right? It's sad how often Christians talk about and treat one another. And are there differences between Christians? Are there differences between our church and other churches? Sure. But what should stick out more than that even is the love that we have for those that truly Love Jesus Christ. That's something that we need. The standard is the love of Christ. And even the challenge is, this is how people will know. Is that true of us? We've all got room to grow there. Let's go back. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 13 if you're still there. Because we're going to be jumping right back. But let's go back to John 13 just for a moment. Because then we get to this section with Peter. And Jesus makes that statement, hey, I'm going away. And it's almost as if Peter like hears that and then misses this whole section on love. He's just hung up. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Jesus, you, you, where are you going again? Okay, love each other. Great, Jesus. Where are you going? What's up with that? And Jesus, again, more clearly now, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And I think Jesus speaking, hey, you will follow me in suffering and martyrdom and you will follow me in glory. You will be with me. And Peter, why can't I go with you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, really? Really, Peter? Because before this night is over, you're going to have denied me three times. 
And I see a connection, even just with this passage, uh, right next to this section on love. And I think a passage that should challenge all of us. As, G- as Peter makes these big claims, right? He talks a big game, I will lay down my life for you, but doesn't. I think we need to see the challenge from these verses on loving each other. And the real test is not, hey, will you give your life to Christ and what will you say? It's, you'll lay down your life for Christ? Cool. Prove it by laying down your life every day for your fellow believers. Show that you would lay down your life for Christ, not with big talk, but with actions showing laying down my life is how I live every single day for my brothers in Christ. You want to be spiritually strong? Love one another. So let's not make the same mistake as Peter. Point number three this morning, don't overestimate your spiritual strength. Don't overestimate your spiritual strength. Your spiritual strength is going to be shown not just in what you say, or what you know, it's going to be shown through your love. And that's where I, keep, I hope you kept a finger in 1 Corinthians 13, because let's go back there. Let's go back there. And let's look at the first few verses now. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And what I want you to notice is all of those things Paul says before he talks about love, they're all good things. He's not trying to knock any one of those things. Do you want faith? that's strong enough to move mountains? I do. Do we want to be a generous people that be willing to to give up everything we have? Yes. But if we don't have love, we're nothing. That's what God says. You could get a perfect score on a theology quiz. You don't love each other. You're nothing. We could have the, you know, the best programs. Our church could be the most well-oiled machine of any church in the valley. But if we don't have love, we're nothing. And those would be good things. I hope our church is a well-oiled machine. I hope you could get a perfect score on a theology quiz. But without love, it is nothing. And that's, that was true for Peter. That was true in what Paul says here. We need to acknowledge that's true for our church. And I know for many of you, the reason why you're sitting in this, your seat this morning is because, hey, I want to go to a church where the Bible is taught. I want to go to a church where they're going to tell me the truth. And to that, I have nothing to say but yes and amen. And we're not planning on changing that ever with this church. It's going to be all about God's word and the truth and opening up and what does it mean. But God says, hey, if you have that, but you don't have love, you're nothing. And we need to think carefully, right? That The world, in a very stupid and demonic way, it wants to pit truth and love against each other. Like, hey, if you have the truth, well, you're not going to be loving. And hey, you want to be loving? Well, then you're going to have to tone down the truth. No, that is a lie from the pit of hell. If we have the truth, we should be the most loving people in the world. And I think when people come... Here, they're going to get, hey, whoa, this church is all about the truth. And that's the way it should be. And we're never going to apologize for that. But we know what they should also get? Wow, I've never seen people love like those people 
do. That is the challenge for our church. So one other thing I want us to notice about the example of Peter, don't overestimate your spiritual strength. It's not about what you say. One place to look is, well, how is, how is your love? Are you laying your life down for others? Another thing you should look, look at is your prayers. It doesn't really talk about it in John, but we see in the other Gospels, eventually they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus spends an hour doing what? Okay. We can, we can do this, right? You guys had an extra hour than the 9 o'clock, right? You, Jesus spent an hour doing what? Peter spent an hour doing what? Sleeping. That's right. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. And we got to think about our own lives and be challenged by that. We need to even look at our culture, and I think we all see that the clouds of concern in our culture, and we see the persecution that is on the rise right now, and I think coming even in greater ways. And we all need to be challenged. Wait, am I going to stand for Christ? Well, what you say to that question right now, I think is pretty much irrelevant. What I want to know is, are you loving people and are you praying? You want to know your spiritual strength? Check those things. Are you laying your life down every day for others? And are you praying while other people are sleeping? And I know that's why you guys came to the 11 instead of the 9, because you were spending that time. You weren't sleeping, you were praying. I know. I know that you were. But again, let's make sure we're not a church that's just talking a big game. As we see a, a coming storm in our own society, let's be a church, hey, we're loving each other. We're pouring ourselves out in prayer. And, and that's what we're going to keep doing no matter what happens in this culture. And, and I'm encouraged by this church. It was one year ago this weekend that it was the last time we met in person for several weeks. And we entered this wacky world that we've made it through. And one thing that encouraged me as a pastor during that time was watching how this church loved each other and watching how people laid down their lives to serve and to care for one another. That encouraged me. But here's the deal. We got a lot of room to grow, guys. The standard is Jesus Christ. The time has not come to rest and say, yeah, we're doing a good job loving. No, the time has come for us to challenge ourselves with the example of Christ. Let's go. Let's love as he has called us to love. And let's remember that he has not called us to something that he has not shown us. As we seek to love each other, let's keep our eyes fixed on the perfect example of Christ. We love because he first and gloriously loved us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may we be humbled as we consider the glory of Jesus Christ, God, and your glory as it is shown on the cross. God, I pray that as we now move in through this section of John, where we will ultimately be looking at the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection, and even, God, over these next few weeks, as we will have time set aside in our culture, on the calendar of our church, to remember the death and the resurrection of Christ, God, humble us and open up our eyes to see your glory. God, even when we pray, uh, like Moses did, God, show, show me your glory, God. In a sense, you're, you're telling all of us, you already have. Because we're not going to get a better vision of your glory than what we see with Jesus Christ on the cross. Your holiness, your justice, your grace, your love, your forgiveness, God, all on display in that moment.
in the most powerful way. Give us eyes to see that, God. I pray for those that have never put their faith in Christ, God. Their eyes have been blind to see that glory. Open up their eyes, God. Open up the eyes of more people. God, it's another thing I remember a year ago, God, how we were praying, God, bring revival in the midst of all this chaos. Show people the emptiness of this world and all the things that they're trusting in and show them the glory of Christ. God, may we not pray that less as things get back to normal. May we pray that even more. But God, I pray that you would transform all of our hearts. God, that we would be a church that is growing in love. God, we pray that that would be obvious people interact with our church, that they would see something different, that they would see people loving as Christ has loved us. God, we know that that is not a, not a thing we can even begin to do without your help, but we pray through the power of your spirit, God, and the more we see of Jesus, the more and more you would transform us from one degree of glory to another and make us more and more like him. So it is that that we ask, God, and it's in his name that we pray today. And all God's people said, Amen.